What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for listening to Armchair Producers. This is just a reminder that you can go over to twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain every Wednesday evening at around 8 o'clock, and you can listen to us live, and you can actually also donate to us if you'd like. It does help support the channel, keep things running. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the street warrior, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am come out to play. Uh, <laughs> notion, I, you're all very lucky to have me here this evening. Um, but you know, I live to service. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you are you are the talent of the show. The we just give it away. We just mm-hmm. give it away yeah. week after week. Uh, you can bask in the glow <laughs> that is our uh, combined powers yes. of, our combined um, powers of, of reliable mediocrity he's gonna say after <laughs> activate power of waffling <laughs> but um we actually have a returning sponsor travis can you believe it mm, I me we had me. <laughs> oh. um, yes this is um a fresh run of um the vaughn a volition saga story will be available on amazon it's it's already available but for anyone who's been wanting to get a paperback copy they are actually getting into producing the paperbacks here in australia so that means far 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 less having to pay on postage and the cost of the book itself will be adjusted accordingly so this is a great opportunity it is not live yet it is going to be live i think in two weeks maybe three weeks but i will keep you posted here but this is just your early warning that you will be able to get it at a much much better price on amazon check it out vaughn a volition saga story by myself george terran that is our sponsor note we've done it actually exciting news if it's just on the broader self-published author front right like a, yeah a lot of people who either want to publish book or have published books and if you can it, and it's just because it hasn't been based locally if it made amazon a less palatable option for that kind of thing yeah absolutely especially there's a lot of um independent writer talent coming through australia and it's really hard to get pushed out especially if you don't have a budget to be able to promote yourself Amazon is a great platform to do that. And now that they are actually opening up their printing side in the Australia market, that's fantastic for everyone. So you've got the UK, you've got the US, and you've got Australia, and we've got a dog knocking at the door. So we have oh. got the genuine talent of the show coming the, in. Uh, the, real, the real draw is uh, early this week. Um, he must have finished dinner a little early this week. Uh, yeah. There's the floor. There the floor. he is. I- I don't think um, Fox, Miss Fox is in at the moment, but she were she would be worshiping the fluff. <laughs> and he is um, a hashtag genuine fluff. Genuine fluff. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the one and only the original fluff. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he yeah, he's also an emo again tonight. He sort of put that look in his face. Yeah. Tonight yeah. Says, he's, he's just he's just doing it. Um, I don't know why he has nothing to complain about. He really doesn't. But you, just don't, you just don't understand me, Dad. You just don't <laughs> understand me. I was emo before you, dog. Uh, I would have loved to have seen emo George. That would have been hilarious. Um, you know, it gives us an FYI. Most emos listen to things like, you know, My Chemical Romance, maybe Green Day, Genesis, not so much. I never really did the Genesis thing, but I did listen to Nickelback. Didn't you didn't hold, like, the Genesis walk record of the, uh, the Melford 
Oh, no, we did that through Colchester. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we did a, a sponsored crawl through Long Melford. Me and my friends decided to just randomly walk the entire stretch of uh, High Street in Colchester doing the Genesis walk. Well, there you go. Uh, we weren't then... listening to Genesis at the time. <laughs> we were just walking. <laughs> uh, so there was random. no context okay. <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um... I'm going to leave that alone um, <laughs> and uh, just going to say that um, it's a pretty decent show again this week. I think we've got a real mm. a, a real treat for uh, listeners, aside from my presence as usual. Um, <laughs> it's it's a, you know, it's a, it's a full show. I think it might, we're going to try and keep it on track, but, you know, that's almost certainly not going to happen. We have our weekly chain movie this week, the uh, Oliver Stone, uh, controversial Oliver Stone uh, milestone from the 90s. Natural Born Killers, which is our chain movie following on uh, from last week's uh, Under Siege. Me, uh, Sublime to a Ridiculous right there. Um, <laughs> I think we're both going to have a chat about Jupiter's Revenge or whatever it's Jupiter's, called. Um, Jupiter's Legacy. There we go. Uh, that's the Jupiter thing. Um, and then we both, I noticed, made it all the way through Stowaway, uh, the Netflix film. You've seen a bit of it. Um, I also had a chance to watch Minari, the uh, Academy Award nominated film uh, this week. And I think you've got um, you've got something on as well. I, uh... I have. Yeah, I um, watched the Netflix Melissa McCartney um, Thunder Force. Um, and so we are if we're depending on how we do for time, we may very well revisit a topic that we have previously talked about. But when is too much too much for superheroes? Because. There's a lot out there, ladies and There's gentlemen. A it's, it's a lot. And should we, should we, thinking, yeah, let's get let's get straight on to it. It's a, a point. I'm cutting him off already because he knows which side his bread's buttered on. It's but, true. It's uh, true. Tell Keep the talent happy. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm going. I'm going to my trailer. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to call my agent. Um, so, Natural Born Killers. I picked this one as a, yeah, a, a real experiment because I had seen this at some point in the late '90s. I think for. Might have been for a university. I mine at my cinema studies course. I actually saw this originally. Yeah, and I was not impressed. My mm -hmm. IMDb uh, rating from the late nineties, which is still the same account that I had back then, um, it is a one. Which I, now mm -hmm. we gave it a, a heads up before we went on the air. Mm -hmm. I did like this a little bit better than I. This is not a one star movie. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> if you want to talk about one star movies on my other podcast, the throwback. <laughs> Available wherever good podcast can be. It's such a shill. Um, we watched this week, we watched the movie, uh, the Care Bear movie from 1985. Oh, oh, that, that is a one star movie. That's no, there are many stars in that movie. I've seen them. Oh, um, yes, you know, <laughs> you, you know, I'm enjoying a film when the Sound gets muted after 20 minutes, and we decide to <laughs> do our own commentary and including multiple Jeffrey Epstein jokes. Um, so, <laughs> so, if you want a bit more of that, you're gonna have to tune in and download the next episode of a throwback whenever that's available because then um, we, we operate. I was gonna say that's a one star movie, this is not a one star movie. No, so what is Natural Born Killers? Two victims. Yeah of traumatized childhoods become lovers and psychopathic serial murderers irresponsibly glorified by the mass media 
Mm -hmm. As I noted earlier, this was directed by the great Oliver Stone. Mm -hmm. Fascinatingly, it was based on a story written by Quentin Tarantino, mm -hmm. one of the strangest combinations in Hollywood history. Uh, the screenplay was not written. Tarantino did not no. get a screenplay credit. There we have David Veloz, Richard Witowski, and Oliver Stone uh, have the screenplay credit. And if you listen to Oliver Stone talk about it, mm. they reworked it substantially from the mm. original Tarantino uh, story. Mm. We have the a trivia about it is mm. apparently Tarantino really hated it so much. Uh, for many years, but it was not until he met, uh, bumped into Johnny Cash and he mentioned how it was one of his uh, most influential movies that he had watched recently. And um, I believe it was Paramount that released the movie. They agreed to publish Quentin Tarantino's original script for it so that people could see the, the difference because he didn't want to be credited with stuff that he hadn't written. Um, so it's an interesting kind of, production development production release and post-release story about about one of the most controversial movies of all time apparently i am keen to actually get a copy of it i've been having a look it's mm. hard, a little hard to get it's a little expensive um mm. i think you can get it for free on, online i think you can find this original screenplay published online Probably, but um yeah i would like to own the original screenplay i'm just curious yeah because there are elements of this that you go oh yeah there's quinn um yeah. but it's buried a little bit um yeah interestingly though i watched a few youtube videos of interviews i couldn't find any of quentin talking about this mm. um but i did find a few of, of oliver stone talking about it he seemed mm. very sensitive about it very yeah. sensitive like one of the ones i watched he basically opened up and goes oh just so you know we didn't steal this we bought this uh we bought it we, we didn't steal it and i'm like who thought you stole it Surely he would have been sued to Helen back if he'd stolen the guy's script. Like, yeah. He was like, oh, you know, we, when we bought it, we talked to Quentin, and Quentin had shopped it around, and no one was interested, and no one wanted to make it. And then when he came to us and sold it, he said he wasn't making it, and, you know, he wasn't yeah. going to get made. He wasn't, wasn't on his, his, his to-do list. And you're like, okay. I mean, I, yeah. I assumed as much, because that's why he fucking sold it to you, right? Like, I mean, yeah. he didn't go and sell the script for fucking Pulp Fiction or anything to anybody else. I don't think anybody else would have wanted to make it, um, probably. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and it's like, okay, I feel like he's actually very defensive about this film. Mm. Uh, that was a more recent interview. I don't know. It was the last 10 years or so. Mm. Um, and uh, I guess he's just we, – we, people forget, I think, when this film was made, Quentin was a nobody, really. I mean um, – Pretty much. I mean, he was, dogs had been made. Yeah. But he, he, was, uh, he was kind of more of like a kind of a script doctor. He was coming in and putting putting some spit polish on some bits and pieces, and yeah, it was. I think True Romance might have been out by this point in time. Um, Maybe, uh, yeah. uh, but uh, he certainly was. I mean, and, and probably in, in indie cool circles, people might have, might have known who Quentin was um, yeah. from Reservoir Dogs. But he certainly wasn't the. He wasn't again. He, he was an Academy Award nominee. He got his Academy Award, of course, the best original screenplay for Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, if you hadn't picked it all and you're not a regular viewer or listener, Tarantino fanboy hat is on throughout mm -hmm. the uh, review. Uh, um, but I, he just wasn't the star he was, and I think it's interesting uh, the star he is, I should say. Mm -hmm. So it's, I guess maybe at the time it seemed like a, a fairly you know, nothing decision for, for uh, Oliver Stone to buy a story by, you know, a Shane Black type character. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, as opposed to a 
Martin Scorsese kind of level character yeah. person. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, the roles are probably reversed. Tarantino is, you know, I would say, significantly more famous than Oliver Stone and probably in many ways, depending on where you draw the line, significantly more successful. So, um, you know, and, and his fanboys do get a little bit... <laughs> so maybe that's why uh, Oliver's a bit a bit sensitive about the fact that he bought the script and it, you know. Um, that said, I would be would have I would I would look forward to reading it at some point. What a film! Yeah. I, 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 wouldn't it be interesting to see Quentin get a chance to come back and do his, his version, version or his version of True Man? Maybe it'd be like an animated version or something. You know, like um, you know, I don't. I'm sure he won't do it. I'm sure he's not interested in that. But I, I would just be fascinated to see what he would have done with it. Because the the nature and the the parody element and um, the uh, the mania behind the the media and how they spin uh, the Mallory and Mickey saga that very easily translates to modern day sensibilities, particularly with all of the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams and all of that stuff. Um, I feel like this is a movie that you could very easily just update to present day and it would potentially be even more poignant considering how politicians and not just these kind of fringe um individuals are weaponizing the media and the social media networks and things like that you could really do something very very interesting with it. um I, th- I, feel, yeah. I, I think that is the i feel like though that's the stone influence in this film i feel so mm. we probably get a little bit more context of this film. Um, we, got distra- <laughs> we got distracted here, um, but it never happens. Um, oh, shiny thing. Uh, oh, squirrel. Um, we have we our, the stars of our film, uh, the characters of Mickey and Mallory Knox, the mm-hmm. uh, titular natural-born killers. They are played by Woody Harrelson, who plays Mickey, funnily enough, and Juliette Lewis playing Mallory. Um, we, uh, the star also includes, the cast also includes uh, Tom Sizemore, Rodney Dangerfield, Jared Harris, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is Wayne Gale. I think is a highlight. Um, he plays yeah. an Australian tabloid reporter, and you might notice the odd familiar face. Tommy Lee Jones, sorry, who was that link to last week? Yeah. Um, <laughs> plays the war, prison warden. But basically, the film is um, it, it's combination road movie, mm-hmm. uh, and message movie. I think yeah. now the road movie screams Tarantino. Like mm-hmm. it, it screeches it from the top of its lungs. So the uh, the opening scene at the diner, uh, where his opening scene, we meet Mickey and Mallory. They are in his diner, and a bunch of a couple of redneck guys come in. So one of them starts to basically sexually harass Juliet Lewis. She kicks the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. Mickey murders the rest, pretty much everybody else mm-hmm. in, in the in in, in the uh, diner in an incredibly violent scene. But they, of course, they're leave one person alive because they always leave one person alive to tell their, <laughs> tell their story, basically to be their conduit into the medium. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that scene reeks of a mashup of the uh, pumpkin honey bunny scene in Pulp Fiction and the opening scene from, from Dust Till Dawn. I was just going to say, I literally just wrote down From Dust Till Dawn there. Oh. It it really is. And the, the nature of From Dust Till Dawn, how it, the the opening of it and the road trip element and the kind of the slow boil introduction of these characters and the psychosis behind them it really does feel like that and then the the shift going into a horror comedy action movie of dust till dawn 
it that's when you get that that shift change in this movie of it becomes a satirical parody yeah. um about society and, it's like okay this has happened before <laughs> I, I almost expected to see um that character again um the the cowboy uh policeman from yeah um, michael parks character michael parks of course he was the same character in kill, uh, bill. kill bill um yeah. to see those see him walking uh into the diner there um because it's so reminiscent of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, as you say, like it takes off uh, into a different direction. Uh, mm. And interestingly, this doesn't look like a typical Oliver Stone film looks. Like no. uh, we've done an Oliver Stone film only a few months ago. We did yeah. W. w. Uh, very, very different type of, of Stone film, one of his yeah. political biopics. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you look at something like, I don't know, Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, mm-hmm. um, he is a. He has got much more of a a, a a kind of genuine or realistic kind of style to his filmography. This is so nineties. It's so it's incredibly stylized. Yeah, um, it's, it's got like, like three thousand cuts in this movie. It's like watching. I, I vaguely remember what, what watching MTV was like in mm. the nineties. You know, with like jump cuts and like filters and going black or white randomly for yeah. no reason and you know, <laughs> and like weird angles you know um there used to be a, a t- tv show here in australia on saturday mornings called recovery uh, mm. i don't know if any of our, our our watchers remember it or um uh any of our, our people listening if you are in a strain from the not older oldest media might remember recovery mm. um and i used to do all that kind of wacky shit it was like mtv like without the budget uh, and so they're like random close-ups of a host, like you know, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll put the camera up really high and look down at him from a really weird angle. And this film, I mean, I, I imagine it's a little bit more deliberate in this sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, the color, the the green filter over over the um the screen, uh, the green filter scenes, mm-hmm. are tended to indicate these are happening within Mickey's sick world, or mm-hmm. he's the product of his sickness. Yeah. Um, and it has a really weird animated segments as well. It's almost like a proto prototype section for Kill Bill One Kill with Orenichi, yeah. and it's like, okay, that's cool animation, but it's it's weird. It's it. This is kind of forcing you to forcing you down a tunnel to get into the characters' minds and the viewpoints and their kind of scatter. Uh, scatological thinking pattern and it's like oh, okay this is so fucking much to take on right now i if i if i had like an, an epileptic fit or something like that it would be dangerous <laughs> sensory overload a little bit yeah and then there's these weird esoteric sequences like the sequence of a native american um which is yeah. like is this real is this a fever dream? Like, yeah. So, like, welcome to the log pa- log cabin. It really was. It was very <laughs> Twin Peaks. Yeah. I was going to expect the log lady to be outside. Um, yeah. um, see you in twenty years. Um, but, but I guess the, the point of this story here is trying to make. We're sort of jumping around a little. The style yeah. of the film is all over the shop. It's like if you mm-hmm. think you, if you've not seen this uh, and you think you know Oliver Stone. This is very, very, very different to anything I think mm. I've seen him do other any of his other films from a stylistic perspective. Yeah. And it's very different to a Tarantino style film as well. Mm-hmm. There was no Tarantino style really at this point in time. Not so, at that point. No. Um you can't really put it down to that, other than to say that it just seems like his stories seem to 
have a really fun, seemed a really meter uh, heavily stylized way of filming. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we meet Mallory, Mickey and Mallory. We take through flashbacks. We learn about their childhoods to a degree. Probably learn a little bit more about um, Juliette Lewis's childhood. A little bit more time is spent on that. Mm-hmm. We learn about her abusive father, who is played by Rodney Dangerfield. And in a, again, in a very interesting stylistic choice, um, those flashbacks are filmed as if they're a fifties. Um, yeah, it's like Wandavision. <laughs> really, really fucked up. Wandavision's fucked up. Yeah, this is this is next level. <laughs> and Ronnie Dangerfield, actually, he's very good in this for someone who is not an actor. Mm. Um, he plays a, a truly repulsive, abusive father. Mm. Um, uh, and that I, what did you make of those sequences? Did you find them just out of place, or did you think the sitcom setting made them more disturbing? I didn't really have a problem with the. I, I don't feel like the sitcom sequence made it more disturbing for me. It was just the present presence, and it was all down to Rodney in those scenes. He was just his eyes, the way he looked and dressed, and you could almost feel this stench coming off of him. Just the way that he's standing there, really pushing his belly out more than he needed to, and really pushing those very very big eyes that he's got. Um, and it was just disgusting. And apparently um, he was just told, be your imagination version of the father from hell. And he did that. And he really fucking did that. It was disturbing. I don't, it, it felt, it also kind of felt weird knowing that Woody Harrelson had been in cheers. So him coming up onto the set, so to speak, was it like, okay, is this a nod to that? Because that's kind of it kind of feels like you're going for that it was very disjointed like the whole movie is disjointed but this sitcom of the life of mallory knox is just like okay yeah there's a lot of reasons why someone would be fucked up but at the same time they're not doing anything to try and make you empathize really but not i don't think i mean i have to imagine that's a deliberate choice these yeah. people are completely without um any redeeming characteristics mm. i think uh, yeah. i mean for, uh, we that is through these uh vignettes and his, his, his sitcom uh angle we do have see how she she meets woody mm-hmm. uh or sorry mickey and you're right and, and what a, what an interesting choice it was for woody at the time um mm. great way to really shed your uh soft uh unthreatening um you know <laughs> yeah. sitcom skin um you, you see it with artists right you see it with like um miley cyrus right where after she mm-hmm. finished doing whatever that team is lizzie mcguire i don't know what show she no, was no she did um, hannah montana hannah montana so then she did the, the sexy dance at the the grammys that year in the in the uh the twerking thing oh, and the, yeah. as, as, to try and kick that uh tweener you know i make music for 11 year olds um angle <laughs> <laughs> uh it didn't really work but you know you can it's, it's an interesting or you know to see would he really branch out like this and yeah um it was probably i'd have to say pretty successful if you look at what the rest of the 90s for him were pretty good if you move on with films like mm-hmm. um the people versus larry flint later on and mm-hmm. um he did have a bit of a downs um you know uh down period there for a long time but um well, he, he's, I don't think he's hes ever really given too much of a bad performance. I think he's always chosen interesting, unique performances and roles and things like that. But he is kind of an icon of Hollywood at this point. People like seeing Woody Allen. Uh, not Woody Allen. <laughs> Woody Harrelson. No one likes seeing Woody no Allen No one likes anymore. seeing Woody Allen. 
But Woody Harrelson, I mean, even the the image of him just with the shaved head and those sort of like very kind of 70s style glasses mm. and the one earring is kind of iconic. He this was really his staple and he's just always pushed. He's almost I would kind of put him as like a slightly more palatable and overall more successful version of what Nicolas Cage does with his roles. He just pushes those extremes and goes, okay, how far can this character go? And Nick Cage happily just jumps right over the line and keeps on going. Whereas Woody Harrelson dances on that line of, okay, he's like the character of Mickey in this. He talks eloquently and he, there's, he has got this kind of bizarre sense of code that you believe because of the way Woody portrays him. Otherwise, it would be a very kind of jarring role in someone who isn't quite as talented, I think. I could see a um, – but have you heard about Rampart, though? He, Rampart is you, – no, you didn't get that. Okay. He did a – he got he – got, he was in a film called Rampart, and then he got asked to do an AMA for it as to promote the film and mm. has been been now widely considered the worst AMA of all time in the sense that he would not answer any questions but weren't to do with Rampart or – but it didn't allow him to then refer back to Rampart. So it's it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a meme now that when you talk about Woody Harrelson, especially on Reddit, they'll be like, but Rampart, have you seen Rampart? Let's talk about <laughs> Rampart. Um, yes, it was a pretty – but anyway, um, you're right. Nicholas Cage could have done this, I think, at mm. least especially, especially 1994 Nicholas Cage. Uh, I think it was, that was right about the time of his Oscar, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, for leave, for that, leave. Sure. um but as it was we you got that you're right we get that iconic image and it was mm. it was on posters everywhere it was on mm-hmm. door in america versus america i might say it ended up on dom walls everywhere t-shirts um, everything um and we sort of follow we saw we sort of follow mickey and mallory's journey to to superstardom and their, their journey to becoming superstars is by going on a Kill Crazy Rampage, Uma Thurman might say, in Kill Bill. Um, <laughs> and they, they kill, you know, dozens of people. And um, they they become huge stars in their own right mm-hmm. uh, just for being killers. Eventually, they are captured. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a famous scene, actually, when they're being led into court. They're being mobbed by fans. Um, and uh, someone asks, what, what, do you, what, what do you have to say to your fans? And... Woody Harrison smirks the camera and says, you ain't seen nothing yet, mm-hmm. um, which I think was in the trailer. Um, yeah. And that's a, that's a, that's a really, uh, it's an iconic scene and a wonderful line. Yeah. And we sort of, we sort of, I guess the second act, the, the, the second half of the film anyway, uh, takes place in the prison with them now incarcerated. Um, and what happens next? I mean, re- their, their agenda of being very famous uh, runs headlong into Robert Downey Jr.'s Wayne Gale, who is mm-hmm. based on a real person, by the way. Yeah, yeah, some some Australian kind of trash trash media kind of guy or something. Yeah, um, you're probably you're probably a bit young to forgive me. There was an Australian guy used to do. There used to be a uh, uh, an Australian um, sorry, an American TV show um, called Hard Copy. Oh yeah, um, and he was based on an Australian television shocking Steve Dunleavy. Mm. Uh, was a real person who his name doesn't ring a bell to me now. 
Um, but he was, yeah, a very well-known at the time for being a trashy, schlocky TV host. But there was a TV show called Hard Copy, which I'm pretty sure had an Australian or British connection as well. Classic Murdoch. Mm. Um, and um, do you remember? Do you ever remember the uh, the Simpsons episode where Homer gets busted for um, the the, uh, the oh, gummy yes. Venus and Milo? <laughs> and it's like and it has rowdy roddy peeper. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's exactly that. That that was what hard copy was like. It was ultra trash. Um, but and it, so and you almost you raised an interesting point earlier on it that this is almost this critique uh, of the media is kind of prescient considering what's happened to it um, yeah. in more recent times where you have stuff like Fox News, which is basically. You know, pure fiction. Oh, I mean, Fox News now seems moderate compared to some of the other real right wing fact job, whack jobs in the states like Newsmax or OAN. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go, oh, well, at least Fox kind of acknowledged the fact that Trump lost the election. The other two didn't. Um, <laughs> so, we but, are living um, two timelines at once, ladies and gentlemen. But what what is what I think is interesting and where. I think what became obvious to me for watching someone like Robert Downey Jr.'s character um, Mm. is that this was almost the birth of that kind of trash TV was in the early 90s. Um, And with with journalists like Wayne Gale or, you know, Steve Dunleavy, the real real person he's sort of based the character on, it's fairly crude Mm. in the sense of, like, we're glorifying, you know, uh, mass murderers um for, for ratings so yeah. yeah that's a fairly crude uh obvious what you're doing as you know mm-hmm. the media right i don't think anybody if we lived in that world i don't think anybody was questioning um you know why uh, gail was doing it. i think at one point they might go oh, you're doing this for ratings i think yeah. Mickey says to him yeah um where it's become far more insidious now Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I don't think anybody would have, like I said, you would never have any doubts about what Wayne Gale was doing. I don't think Wayne Gale would have any backwards about coming forward to admit why he was doing it. Yeah. Um, but now it's, I think it's a far more sinister and insidious uh, undermining of the, you know, I guess the once noble idea of what the media could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, whereas you know, you, someone on Newsmax will say with a straight face, "Oh, yeah." Hugo Chavez hacked America's voting machines and installed, you know, Biden, despite the fact that Chavez has been dead for 10 years. Um, <laughs> um, you can't prove that. Yeah, that's, that's just exactly what they want you to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll sell that to you as patriotism. Mm-hmm. Um, so the packaging is a little different. Sorry, that's probably yeah. off topic here. But that was one thing that was running through my head. And it's like, I was very nostalgic going, oh, that's cute. I remember when trashy fake news was packaged like that yeah um and you know and you would probably be packaged in with like uh the, the, the mallory and mickey and mallory would probably be packaged with a story about ufos and bigfoot that yeah was, yeah yeah it would be that that channel that's sort of like not every household was able to get but you could potentially just jimmy it in it was almost like a like pirate tv and uh like there was I don't know if you guys had it here. I feel like you must have had it. It was like after the watershed time, like 6.37, 7pm, it was kind of no holds barred and just it was a wild west of like, wow, okay, yep. So they're showing basically pornography. Oh, they're, they're showing a lot of violence now. Oh, what? Um, 
They're just no. throwing anything at the wall and seeing what sticks. The only thing it might rem- remotely resemble that was SBS, um, okay. which, you know, um, was sort of a foreign, well, was far more about foreign movies back in the day when I was a kid than it was today. Um, it was, you know, set up for non-English speaking um, Australians. Uh, and so if you, you tune in at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, you might end up seeing a very a highly sexualized Spanish movie and go, I have no idea what's going on, but I like it. Look, the uh, plot of Emmanuel in space is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that one. But there was one every week, but there was certainly no Wild West telly here. You um, mm. um, About the closest you got to that was either SBS or tuning in at four in the morning and getting Benny Hinn. Um, <laughs> or, or or an infomercial selling something, and you go, yeah, I don't have any shoe, any knives that can cut me out of a shoe. Uh, <laughs> um, I did do that once when I was drunk. Um, they were good knives. Um, but anyway, so that's that's. But I find the second half of the film is where we have Robert Downey Jr. desperately trying to organise a the, the the interview with with Nikki and Mallory. Uh-huh. While you know they are sort of pursuing their own goals, and they're using, they're trying to use each other to get to their end goal. And I, uh-huh. I guess it's a what it's a twenty-seven-year-old film. I can spoil it. Uh, Mickey and Mallory do far better out of it than than when um, Wayne Gale does when a, uh-huh. a prison riot breaks out, which Mickey and Mallory use to take advantage of a situation, kill their guards, take him hostage, and and escape from prison. Uh-huh. Um, what did you make of a finale? The finale is quite an interesting one. I know. I feel like I feel like Oliver Stone feels like he's saying something very deep here. I I feel like the second half of this movie is they we've had a lot of sensory overload in the first half with kind of pseudo drug trips, like when they get bitten by the snakes and they're tripping out a little bit, and Mickey and Mallory's psychosis bleeding in and out, and the animated moments and things like that. But then everything gets turned up to 11 in the second half except for mickey and mallory who really become much more subdued they have these like spikes of aggression and things for example when tom sizemore was in the prison uh, in the cell with mallory um but otherwise it's really loud with the um the uh, media stuff that keeps on getting cut to or it's really loud in the prison right itself, or you've got Wayne Gale screaming all the time in in Aussie, and you've got um, Tommy Lee Jones just overacting as like the chewing the scenery. Yeah, my God, there is there's so much just acting froth, just throwing all over the screen between the two of them. It's I think like, we said he was chewing scenery last week in, in Under Siege, and he, and he sort of looked at us a la Mickey and said, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true, though. And I, I kind of get the point of all of it, why it was directed and edited and, and created that way, because he was Oliver Stone was very clearly trying to make this point of, there was a shift in society where the people making all the night all the noise and becoming famous they can just sit back and reap the rewards of the mania that they have wrought but i don't think that he actually he lands the message well i think it ends up kind of coming off as like oh oh okay that's that's how you're ending it hmm i don't know i I, I tend to agree. I don't. I think he's made a a a, a good effort 
at mm. making a, a messy film about the excesses of a media in the early 90s. And he has been borne out by what we've seen happen to the media mm-hmm. over the next, preceding two and a half decades. Yep. Uh, like you said, like we've sort of spent some time on it. It would, it doesn't seem out, it's messy, doesn't seem out of place in 2021. Mm. Its style most certainly seems out of place and kind of mm. insane. Um, but you're right, he kind of, it's kind of one note mm. all the way through. It's kind of banging on that about that point. And what he, I think he forgets to do in here is create a story mm-hmm. of note and a character or characters we like. No one is likable in this movie. Everyone is repulsive. Everyone mm-hmm. in this film is utterly repulsive. No mm-hmm. one has any, you know, we, we, obviously Mickey and Mallory, horrible, psychotic, cruel killers. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Sizemore's Skagnetic is a rapist and a killer. And, yeah. and, you know, just a disgusting human being to himself. Um, uh, Tommy Lee Jones is... Plotting uh, uh, to have Mickey and Mallory you know, killed. Killed. I mean, he's completely without um, redemption as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wayne Gale is cheating on his wife. Um, he is has absolutely no moral code. Mm. Um, will do anything for ratings. And in the end, he's more than happy to throw his lot in mm. with, with the killers. Um, and I think obviously we've talked about Rodney Dangerfield and he's horrible, um, beyond horrible as well. There mm-hmm. is no one in this film who we spend any time with who we'd like. And yeah. I, I have to imagine that's a deliberate choice. Stone's a talented writer and director. He knows what he's doing. But mm-hmm. I don't think I want to spend two hours with people who are all horrible. Yeah. And it's like you, you look at this, the, the end of every character's journey and every one of them kind of gets the ending that they deserve, except Mickey and Mallory, who get the ending they want. And it's like, OK, so are we now supposed to celebrate them? And ha- are we supposed to have built up a bond with them? Where so like, yeah, that's the ending I wanted for them. Is, is that what he's trying to say? It doesn't it doesn't match the screamed at message of everyone's fucking horrible and the world's gone to shit because of media. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it doesn't. Uh, if we're supposed to, uh, maybe if he's trying to say something like, well, they're the only two people who are living authentically according to what they want to do, I guess. I don't know. Um, it's, I'm not, it was, I guess it didn't really bother me that much that they got away at the end. Um, I mm. guess it just kind of bothered me all the way through that uh, no one in this film is is fun to be around. They're, and I kind of mm. feel like, I think I said this about common um, uh, promising young woman, but I finally felt like I walked out of this and uh, walked out, turned the TV off, needed a shower. Um, mm. These people are horrible. It's a horrible space to be in. It's, yeah. And, and, I, and I, again, I imagine Oliver Stone wants us to be uncomfortable while we're watching this. It's not a... He's not telling us this isn't this isn't the Care Bear movie, <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a crossover that's asking to happen. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 not a heartwarming family movie. We shouldn't be comfortable. No. At the same time, I maybe something redeeming at the end. I mean, mm. if, again, if you're going to have all horrible, unlikable characters, the story needs to be better than this. Mm. Uh, not all over the shop like it is. It's, mm-hmm. it's not. It's. I would say this is a solid five or a six now out of ten for me. Yeah. Um, I still think it the matchup of a Tarantino story 
with a message film, I don't know that that really works. Yeah, I I just think that, especially given the career that Tarantino has made and how very purposeful he has been about certain any kind of message that he does use or utilize in his narrative storytelling, it's very very subtle but done to entertain. That's always the goal. It's to entertain. It's never to inform or to make you stop and think and consider. Um, not in a way that Oliver Stone does, where he, particularly with his kind of um, sociopolitical focusings on like Nixon and W and things like that, where he's trying to force you to really look at this particular area and analyze it and question it and debate it and think. Um, I just don't think that's, that's not the kind of cinema that Tarantino wants to make. And I just and this is not a criticism of, of thought pieces no. or, quick, or, or or message. I like obviously I love that kind of thing. I love nonfiction. Um, mm. I just think if he was, I just think I can see that the the, the building blocks or what would have been a very probably proto Kill Billy that's the dawn. So I get the words out. That's uh, mm. the dawn kind of story. You know, mm. uh, a typical Tarantino esque. You know, schlocky exploitation road movie. Yeah, I can see the building blocks in there. I mean, and I would love to see. I'm really actually kind of found myself going, oh, I would have loved to have seen how. I don't know if Mick. I assume Mickey and Mallory existed in his story. Um, yeah. I would love to see what Mickey and Mallory look and sound like with his, with his words. Yeah, and, and his direction because uh, they feel very Tarantino esque characters to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean. It just when you 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 put, plant, transplant them into this film with a decent message and a, and a very talented director and writer, and it just doesn't quite doesn't quite just, click. It doesn't you work. Know? Yeah, uh, and I've always said it, and I'm glad I watched it again to say it doesn't still doesn't work a hundred percent for me. But it is not a complete shit show. It's not a complete disaster. It's not unwatchable. Um, it is fascinating to look back at this and realize exactly how controversial it was at the time. You can read about it in the IMDb trivia, but the filmmakers were sued um, by um, a, a parents of a teenager and John Grisham, the writer, um, for uh, who was involved in this little suit for inspiring these kids to kill themselves or commit murder or basically commit, um, commit a crime. Um, and for a moment in time, it looked like they might it might um, have actually somehow been, here we go, in the infamous, infamous incident after the film being released, Oliver Stone and Time Warner was sued by Patsy Byers with the support of author and producer John Grisham. In March 1995, 18-year-old Sarah Ebenson and her boyfriend allegedly dropped acid, watched this movie, later that night, Sarah shot and killed, paralyzed Byers, a store clerk in somewhere, and Benjamin killed cotton gin uh, manager William Savage in, uh, in Hernando, Mississippi. Um, so there's a whole other bit of it. I'm not going to go into all of it, but, but basically for a point in time, it looked like they might actually be at some level held liable or made responsible in some way for these, these, the actions of these teenagers after watching the film. Um, that would and, have been a weird chain of events following if that had gone through. Jeez. Well, if you think about it, it would have been a, a, a real landmark decision in terms of let's think yeah. American for a second here, the first amendment things. Like if you, if, if you make a violent film and someone watches your film and does something and that, and someone's able to, you know, prove a, a linkage of some description, 
and mm. you can imagine what that would have very much um, influenced the type of cinema it was made from then yeah. on. Uh, yeah. I, I can't imagine how this thing could have stood. Um, my very, you know, me and uh, U.S. constitutional law. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just the what's, vibe. The what's the thirteenth remark in the Constitution, Travis? Uh, That's the one. Four twenty every day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I know many people who would approve. Uh, you, you, you obviously haven't read it. You know, the four twentieth amendment is uh, <laughs> it's a work of art. Um, but yeah, like I can't imagine it would have. You know, been able to stand, but gosh, it could have been would have had a chilling effect mm -hmm. on, on what what kind of what you could write and say and do in 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 uh, in popular culture as a result. Yeah. Um, but people, I don't think we remember how controversial this was at the time. This was a big deal about how violent mm -hmm. this film was. Um, and I don't know, what did you, do you think it's still really violent? I thought it was like, meh, it's kind of violent, but it's kind of it's, not really that bad. It it is violent. And the characters are grotesque to the point of vulgarity, but at the same time, I think the fact that it very much looks very dated, very nineties, it it feels certainly to me like there's it has now kind of gone to a point where if this was somehow under the Disney banner, this would have a, a big black. Uh, screen come up before it so like this movie was made in the time when this was considered acceptable for movie uh movie theaters blah 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 i just put some kind of proviso on there just like yes this is how things were we don't do this anymore and uh, it it just i i don't know if it's just a matter of time has and <laughs> cinema has desensitized me to it but it's like uh, it's, it's not that bad well if you think it, it, this is the same year that pulp fiction came out just to compare apples to apples and we wow, saw Marvin man. being shot in the head in the back of a car um, by John Travolta, and that was kind of played for laughs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, oh shit, man! Shot him in the face. Shot Marvin in the face. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, and then you know, having them hosed down in the backyard. I mean, that film is is not backwards about its violence, and and I feel like, I mean, again, Tarantino was very controversial mm. at the time with his use of violence and and mm. the. How how gruesome it was. So yeah. uh, I don't know. I found myself thinking, uh, this is pretty. This is pretty mild by today's standards. I mean, there's a lot it, of hyperbole around the nat natural born killers, and there, uh, around a lot of the the ultra violent things. Like you go back and you watch something like Caligula, another one of the most controversial movies of all time. It's like actually, it's not that bad. It, it it's a shit movie. Yes, and. Um, and it's showing generally unpleasant things, but at the same time, it's, there's, there's, I've seen far worse. Like you look at the some of the the shit that back in the like the 2010s when there was that slew of horror porn, horror porn, like, like the um, that, Eli Roth films. Yeah, it, that's that was far more and still is far more uncomfortable for me to watch on a visceral level than going back and watching these movies. Yeah, it um, it was it, it. I think it's it's interesting, and you see it all these yeah. years later, and it kind of like kind of like all the fuss about Mortal Kombat, the video game. Oh no, it's going mm. ruin the children's lives and blah blah blah. And you're like, well, you go back I and look at it. So like, oh, look at the red pixels that I can't actually. You, you they're supposed to be blood, but yeah, no. Yeah, you can use your imagination. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you have the keys, sir. I you do. I have chosen. I chose straight away because. We don't often do comedies. 
in our chambers. No, they don't come up they're much. Un- yeah, they don't come up much. It's very subjective yeah. comedy. Yeah, but Woody Harrelson has an uncredited role in a Steve Martin movie that I have not watched. So this is a great opportunity for me to watch one that I've not watched. And this is the generally quite highly praised L.A. Story. Oh, I have seen L.A. Story many, many times. Mm. Uh, I don't know why it's so highly praised, but um, mm. it, there are parts of this movie I love very, very much. Mm. But for those who don't know, the quick little synopsis for you all is with the help of a talking freeway billboard, a wacky weatherman tries to win the heart of an English newspaper reporter who is struggling to make sense of the strange world of early 1990s Los Angeles. So, as I say, this is written and stars Steve Martin, directed by Mick Jackson, who probably most famous for The Bodyguard, um, the bodyguard and Volcano. <laughs> um, uh, it Starring also... uh, the wonderful, I think, friend of issue, one of our favourite actors right behind, right mm-hmm. behind Sam Rockwell is mm-hmm. Richie Grant. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. threatened me with a dead fish. uh it also has sarah jessica parker in a role that she has apparently said was a big turning point for her in her career um you've got kevin pollock in there patrick stewart so um iman who is famously david bowie's wife um larry miller who is a face that you would just go oh yeah him because he's been in fucking everything um let me see who else have we got in here uh i think that's the the most yeah that's that's all the 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 most uh, prevalent names so there's likely to be a couple of options for you to to branch off of here but i'm excited to see this because i do love steve martin um and and i should note everybody uh if you're sitting here going steve martin that is an appropriate response but this is good steve martin this is this is on the cusp of not quite so good Steve Martin anymore. This is, but this is still. Yeah, in, he 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 did a, have he has had a dark period. He, he's, not, he's not exactly purple patch Steve Martin, but it's it's <laughs> it's, it's it's leaving the if the purple patch is on behind him, um, mm-hmm. and the dark zone is ahead of him. But this is still pretty good. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. What? Kevin Pollack. Yeah. Is credited with voices in Ewoks Battle for Endor. <laughs> Please. Oh my goodness, is that where we're gonna go next? Uh, would you like to know? <laughs> I believe it's on um Disney Plus now, so <laughs> I thought you were just going Kevin Pollock. Ah, okay. So that gets us to usual suspects, a now very controversial movie considering the director and main star. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean pff. It does it get more controversial when he walks battle for Endor? <laughs> I, don't I don't know, know that it does. I don't know that it does. Christmas Vacation. Oh, well, they're special. Yeah. Which I believe is also on Disney Plus now. I believe so, yeah. Poor George anyway, Lucas that... must be rolling in his bed of money. <laughs> I Yes, I'm sure he is. Where does he sleep? On silk sheets with many beautiful women. Um, <laughs> Uh, Let, let's go on. Let's let's move on, shall we? Mm-hmm. Um, let's go on to Jupiter Jupiter's Legacy, the new superhero fi- um, series on Netflix, um, brought to us by Mark Miller. 
um, the creative mind behind Kick-Ass, the comic book's there. Um, Jupiter Legacy is also a comic book series, a well-praised comic book series. And um, it's certainly, I think it's been, been the most successful writing credit that Mark Miller has uh, received. Um, he is credited for many, many different variations of um, like Superman and Batman things that he's done. Um, so this is his kind of analytical breakdown of the golden age and juxtaposing that with the modern age of superheroes all in one show, plus his love of um, the ancient world and just general kind of cosmological mumbo jumbo. This is, this is an interesting show. Um, it's not a good show. No, um, I, you said you've watched all but two, I think. No, I've watched all of it. All of it. Okay. Yeah. I watched the first episode and then about say half to two thirds of a second episode before I went, my God, I'm bored. Um, I was so bored. Um, and I found myself going, last week we were watching Invincible. Now that was a good superhero show uh -huh. about a bunch of superheroes I'd never heard of. Um, yep. But I was thoroughly engaged and entertained in that show, which, yeah, we're going to jerk off about that show anymore. We've done that. <laughs> um, but this is like, what? Something please happen. It's so boring. Mm -hmm. Oh, now, it's, it's, it's awful. This, the first this two episodes, at least, are awful. Yeah, it does get better, but it has the cardinal sin that so many shows and movies that are determined to be a trilogy or a saga do. They try and do too much at the fucking start. If there's, like, the most interesting part of the entire series is everything set in the 1920s. The look, the attitude, the way that they effective basically go to Skull Island. Um, it's not actually Skull Island. Like you don't see King Kong or anything like that, but it's like this mythological island that is legendary and things like that. It really, the, the way that it they, they looked as this party uh, adventuring and eventually getting powers of superheroes, um, which is never explained, nor is the title of the series. <laughs> it's, it's like Jupiter's. No, there's no superheroes called Jupiter. No one did it called Jupiter. No, no one. Um, do they go to Jupiter? Not really explained. Um, but the 1920 stuff looks really cool. And it's like, I would love a show like The Mummy, Brendan Fraser era, like put set it in the 1920s, show like that. That would be fucking cool. And Fuck it. If you really want to do superheroes, do a 1920s set superhero show. That would look fucking cool. It would be interesting. It's a it's a time a period of time that we do not see on TV. We get little bits of it here and there in cinema, but it's not really a big a big show period. But it's got a wonderful style. I was <sighs> so I was think I said to you before, like I got mm. two two thirds away through the second episode and then found something more interesting to watch when a fly was walking across the wall on the other side of a room. That's about how bored I was. Um, I guess another criticism I have here is it looks cheap. Yeah. It looks, it looks really cheap. Now, I understand superheroes are not cheap to produce. You want to make them look good. There's a reason why I got, got what a 
Endgame cost what two, three hundred million dollars or something like that to make. Yeah. Um, it, uh, a lot of shows these days cost. You know, I think Discovery, Star Trek Discovery, cost you know something like ten million dollars an episode to make or something yeah, crazy like that. that. Twenty-five, and, thirty. Yeah. And it, I mean, I do not like that show at all, but it looks good. Yeah. Um, you can and you like one thing you're not criticize that show for is looking cheap. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, this show reminded me a lot of those CW uh, superhero shows like The Flash and Stargirl and Batwoman and absolutely that kind of thing. agree. There's this level of finish to the costumes and like the superheroes, they never get dirty. Their their costumes don't look lived in. They don't look lived in. They look too much like a model. There's like, well, no. I'm sorry, that, like, unlike Superman's cape and costume, it comes from Krypton, so you could argue, all right, that's one of the reasons why it doesn't rip and things like that, because it's made of a material that is more powerful because of just where it's come from another planet. It's different technology. But this is all stuff that we still don't know where they come from, because when they get their powers, they get their costumes, and it's... It, you know, it kind of works in Shazam because it's literally magic. They are wearing magic. Green Lantern, it's, he, it's literally a costume he makes with his mind, so he doesn't have to make it look dirty if he doesn't want to. But these people are having fight. Like, the first episode is this fight with, um, like, Black Star, this kind of doomsday slash... It's a dollar um, store orc from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and he's just like just wrecking them. But the fight sequence is lazy. It's poorly done. There's an overuse of wire work to make it look like they're flying. None of the flying and things looks believable. And they're being thrown around. It's like, okay, oh, look at that. That guy's hair got a little messed up. <laughs> it just it just doesn't work. And it, they they keep trying to do all these like red herrings and lead you off and think oh is the bad guy over here is the bad guy this what's this going to happen and they end up not actually fulfilling any storylines they all become unfulfilled and unsatisfying um i, I agree and, and just comparing it again to insidious sorry um invincible um <laughs> very different um but uh you know if you think about that fight scene between uh mark and his dad in in the final two like I mean, yeah. if it started, they deal with the costumes, right? Yeah. And that first couple of episodes, Mark Hamill's character is just there. They'd be the costume maker in there. Yeah. One cup, and they've got a cool character and a cool scene. And, yep. you know, he, he serves some purpose in the story later on. Yeah. Uh, and you get the greatest voice actor of all time to do it. Um, and, you know, you, there you go. You got you, We know what happens with costumes. We know they're, why they're so hardy. Yeah. Um, but even in the final episode, a couple episodes, when, when Mark takes on his dad, his costume gets fucked up. Yeah. Even in the first episode where, where Omni-Man destroys the, the Guardians, his costume gets all fucked up. Yeah. Uh, and I guess I know it's animation and it's a little bit easier, but uh, obviously Kirkman and the guys thought about it. I guess mm -hmm. little things like when Mark Igard uh, is Omni-Man, he's dad, <laughs> um, his eyes are bloodshot for the next episode as well. Yeah. Little things like that where attention to detail, which sort of takes it from – yeah, that's uh, a cool fight sequence of kind of yeah. cool, I guess, to I'm buying into this as being something, you know, that the filmmakers or the creators care about. Mm. Um, I, I just, this show has either through 
incompetence and lazy lazy filmmaking or i would think far more likely it just doesn't have a budget it needs to achieve that kind of thing in live action well you look at the the cast and it's there's there's a bunch of people that you go oh i've seen them around there's no big names to this like other than george duhamel yeah he's the biggest name but he's not exactly a big name um, no, he's, no he's, he was he 10 years ago, maybe he was when he was in the Transformers movie, right? But that's about, that was not yeah. 2007. Yeah. This is supposed to be like the big kind of grand entrance of Mark Miller's superhero takes, which he, he proselytizes like nobody else. He talks about the Superman movie that he is, uh, tr- trilogy that he's always wanted to do, going from the birth of Krypton to the death of Earth and Superman being the only one. He, he will go on for days talking about it. It's like, okay, well, put up a shut up. He's done it in the comics of Jupiter's legacy and the spin-offs because there's tons of fucking spin-offs. There's prequels. There's all sorts of stuff. This is supposed to be his first, because I believe he's a producer on this as well. He's had a lot of control on this. That he Netflix bought the rights to this for a lot of fucking money, and this is what they've come up against. And this brings up production issues. Stephen S. DeKnight was uh, he's credited as the creator of the series. He's the guy that brought us the Daredevil series, the now defunct Marvel Netflix show that was arguably the strongest most potent depending on who you talk to personally i still think that jessica jones season one was still the number one out of all of those so he knows how to make these gritty realistic superhero shows with this overarching story as well as telling interesting individual episodes he left this over creative differences and they got someone else in and clearly they didn't know what to do because like i said before there is no story that has a satisfying ending and every single character in it's like i don't i don't think i actually know who the fuck you're you called like um the the names of the actual the superhero names um one of them is called brainwave but that only makes sense just when you see his powers but even then why do all fucking telepaths and psychics have to put their hand out or touch their head to use their power why i guess it's if you've got to demonstrate what they may to make it look like they're doing something right there there is literally you you ha- we have had cameras literally go in through the eye and go into our bodies they can't think of something visually interesting that isn't just hmm i think yeah. didn't didn't david tennant's character not do that again to go back to jessica jones he, he, just, he didn't he just talked and it worked you knew exactly and what was, he was fucking and, doing and yet another fix another vote for that because that was fucking great yeah. um but he was fucking menacing i think he we talked about it before with thanos yeah. he was probably almost their best villain except yeah. for loki um and he's still and that, that show may not be canon anymore but his yeah. performance dare not be overlooked because it was so good it's uh fun. and he was a he was probably the most um brilliant telepath character i think i've seen on a yeah. superhero he was, show he was terrifying he was commanding he did everything and they you could see you knew what his power was straight away um but uh I think Josh Duhamel is, you know, he's just credited as Sheldon Sampson, but he's a utopian. 
utopian. Thank you. Yeah. Like, I don't fucking care. And th th there's just none of the superhero names. It's like, okay, I don't care who you are. I don't really know who you are. I recognize you because I'm literally looking at you and I've chained through this because I want to get to the end. But otherwise, oh, don't know you from you. It's, yeah. a, it's a mess. It's, it's a miss, this one, for me. It's a miss. Mm. Um, I might go back at some point. I, I, I can't say I, I can't say I have a great degree of confidence. I'll be, I will. It just, coming off coming off Invincible, it felt like it felt like a pale imitation of that. Mm. And look, obviously, if, were, if we've got comic book fanboys who are listening or the mm. bots happen to have read a couple of comic books <laughs> um, at some point in time of the hacked Amazon, um, <laughs> You know, they might be coming out there. Oh, this is predates Invincible. Blah blah blah. blah. I'm like, doesn't matter. Doesn't, doesn't matter. matter if doesn't matter if Thanos is a ripoff of Doomsday. Doesn't matter. Marvel yeah. did it first. Marvel did it better. Yeah. Um, and I think I in this case, say, well, no, go on. No, I was gonna say Kirkman and Co. did much better with Invincible. Mm. I will say it's not all trash. For example, there is actually, it's not a great scene, but the the message behind it is actually quite good it's a scene between the brothers sheldon and uh i can't remember his other name the guy who plays brainwave um they are talking about their role in society and in the world as superheroes they're they're kind of arguing why don't they uh, meddle in wars in politics and things like that and it's got some interesting ideas it is far too lofty of an idea for this show to handle but it is nice to actually have for the first time that come up as like okay yeah these godly fucking powers people why aren't they just taking over the world and just setting everything straight and stopping everything that they don't want to stop because who can fucking stop them it's a it's a good conversation piece that any geek who has ever watched any superhero movie, particularly Superman, because he is nigh on invincible the way that the movies portray him now. It's like, why doesn't he just fucking do this? We can't do anything to stop him, so why does he? It's never addressed in their fucking movies, and it is an interesting, compelling piece. That is a compelling question that would actually have, if, like, Superman, uh, what, if... Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent had had that the conversation that happens in Jupiter Legacy in Batman v Superman, that would have been cool. They didn't, and they decided to have this weird pissing contest instead in that movie. Oh, why did you say that name? <laughs> but it's it's an important one that just ends up feeling very shit because it's surrounded by so much waste in this show it's a real shame you hang on a second do you want to be famous no i, I don't want to buy followers i don't <laughs> want to find followers and things that you no thank you we're not interested uh, um <laughs> down comes the band hammer and boom. Like, gonna, boom um uh and i hit you know this happens every time when you do this i lose the chat um so I, I, okay, I get a big red thing that pops up, but anyway, oh, well. um, doesn't matter. Um, I was going to say the one superhero property I can think of that did that well was uh, with the Watchmen. Yeah, it, even, then, even, even then, it was still not quite right. 
but it's it's handled it the best. I meant more of a book rather than uh, yeah. Oh, oh, the book. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but you, the film kind of touched on it a little bit, but yeah. it didn't go too deep into it. Yeah. Um, and it kind of feels like a what's to be something like the Watchmen. Um, that's that's a lot of what I feel is Mark Miller's thing. It's sort of like I I built I. Just anytime I read his stuff, I look at it and just go, oh, you really want to be Alan Moore, don't you? You want to be like the the blockbuster, balls-to-the-wall version of Alan Moore. It's like, mm, you're not – you do entertaining stuff. Just do that. Be more like Robert Rodriguez instead of trying to be like Tarantino. Let's put it in movie things. where Robert Rodriguez is very good at what he does. But if you try and give him more subtlety, he just can't handle it. He doesn't know how to how to handle that. Whereas Tarantino uses violence to tell his story in a very delicate, fine way. Nothing but, wrong um, with either of those ways, but when one you tries to do your, the other, except your place in the world, you are not Alan Moore. Yeah, there are um, very very few people who are very, and that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Not as you say, not many are. You got to accept your place yeah. in the world. Um, Jupiter's Legacy. Now you've had some time to watch yet another superhero property uh, uh, on, on one of the. Is it a Netflix movie? It is. A, it is another Netflix movie. Yes. And do tell us about Thunder Force. Thunder Force. Yes. Um, this was a challenge because it's stars Miss McCartney, and I don't like her. I've never found her funny in anything, and that continues in this movie. It's not a funny movie. It's the, the funniest bit or the fun, funniest element of it is Jason Bateman's character, the crab, because he basically plays Jason Bateman, but with crab claws. And I think there's some Zoidberg influence there. A little bit. Yeah. I hear he scuttles a little bit. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he purposely kind of scuttles off to the side. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I, I just really wish that release the whoop. <laughs> release the whoop. Let's <laughs> just recut with him. Hooray, I'm, I'm having a wonderful time. <laughs> I'm useful. Oh, <laughs> that would be phenomenal. So, it would make but, this uh, really uh, Yeah, um, it, it's, it's directed by Ben, ben Falcone yet again, who is um, yeah. uh, Melissa McCarthy's husband. Yep. Um, and I think he has been responsible for some of her absolute worst work. Tammy. Tammy and I think Identity Thief might have been him as well. Possibly, yeah. Um, but if it's bad and she's – the um, Super Intelligence, I think, he did as well, which I think came mm -hmm. out last year, which apparently was awful. Yeah. But for those who give a shit, the plot is, in a world where supervillains are commonplace, two estranged childhood best friends reunite after one devises a treatment – that gives them powers to protect their city. That is the synopsis. That is as much of a plot as they really want. It's like, okay, I don't, they don't really explain as to why people can be born with superpowers and they manifest in strange ways as we assume with the crab, just ha having crab claws. He has no other crab abilities. He just has crab hands. But because of that, he has chosen a life of crime. There are people um, like this has got uh, Bobby Cannavale uh, in it, uh, Pom Clementif, who is no stranger to superhero moves, considering she plays Mantis in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, 
and she's like shown throwing lightning and fire and all sorts of hellish things around in the beginning um and it's like okay so what is it like a genetic thing where if you get a superpower you are genetically predispositioned to break rules and become an agent of chaos in our society oh you're not gonna answer that question okay cool and yet olivia spence who is spencer who is octavia um, uh, octavia yes octavia spence who's melissa mccartney's friend in the show she is creating something to give people powers but it doesn't send them evil they just get power so like huh okay yeah you've got some very interesting rules of a world here um i don't care and it's sitting on a 34 for metacritic and 4.4 on the imdb scale <clears throat> it doesn't look bad like it doesn't it it has the typical look of a netflix movie where it's like okay these are serviceable special effects and serviceable action sequences but it feels like this kind of sits very much along the same vein as a lot of the adam sadler netflix comedy movies where it's like okay you're you're trying to be funny but you're really not it doesn't eye candy wise it doesn't look too bad you've got no names in there so they're going to be a draw for people who are like oh i like jason bateman i watched that um but it's like oh this is this is a hollow shell this is a very very hollow shell um it also does kind of scream at, at netflix's attempt to try and make their own franchise because they i they the, the way that the movie ends it's obvious that they've gone hey if you like this we'll make more of it we already have lots of ideas that we don't know what to do with and yeah that's that's I, all i'm gonna give this title nothing, <laughs> nothing but um bad things about this this film and i wonder if the economics of how Netflix works changes the the read of what, what, what's a good film. What is a successful film for Netflix? Uh, I remember Adam Sandler films and they were roundly criticised and rated as being some of the most god awful things are going around. Them, so were, you don't have to. They were awful even by standard standards, according to most yeah. people. Um, yet, I think I remember reading, maybe it was the, the first one, The Hateful Eight or whatever it was, the... Oh, yeah, who would know that's was the, the one of the most highly viewed films in Netflix history. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of thing happens again and again. Like, these films come out, they're awful, and they turn out... Like, there's a Tish Hemsworth movie that came out last year, but it wasn't very good. Um, um, yeah, spy One. Yeah, and apparently, again, that broke records as being one of their most watched things mm. ever. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't know really because, I mean, it's Netflix, right? They don't necessarily yeah. disclose what they, they say. Hey, this has been our high, most highly viewed thing ever. Mm. Um, does it just like because people are lazy at home and go, oh, Melissa McCarthy's in it. I'll watch that. I um, think that it is largely a lot of that. I think it's this. their, their movies are throw just enough money at this. Get just enough star power behind it to get people to go all right i'll try netflix and sign up to netflix and watch it and then go oh you know what that was all right oh there's some more on there 
but then you start looking you go oh look at all these other shows the the tv the tv shows of netflix are have always been where their quality comes from it's always even even their trashy netflix tv stuff like the uh the irregulars the kind of the show that's already been cancelled after one season based around the 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 baker street the regulars of sherlock holmes um even that is overall better and better quality and better production value and better writing and everything compared to most of these star-led comedy slash science fiction movies that netflix has definitely chosen as its two temples of, of cinema genre that it goes for comedy and sci-fi and it's like okay so these are just literally just gateway drugs to get people into the the more content that they produce that's better okay i don't know how long that format is going to last but that seems to be what they're doing and it's interesting, maybe what's important to them is changing it away. So mm. if people, if lots of people watch a piece of shit Adam Sandler film or, or, or uh, Melissa McCarthy film, even if 20% of their viewers watch it in the first week, mm. that's, that seems like a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not good anymore because really where they were five years ago is not where they are now in a way. Like, you know, they didn't have anywhere near as much competition. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, is it is a good film not just one that twenty percent of your audience watches, or is it a good one a film that makes you go, or a film series that makes people go, I need to either sign up for Netflix or keep my membership mm -hmm. so I can keep watching it. Like, mm -hmm. I can't imagine there are many people who sign up for Disney Plus apart from shit like The Mandalorian and the Marvel stuff, right? Like, if it's not Star Wars and Marvel why i don't i don't think there's anything else on disney plus is there apart from their old animated films like i mean yeah it's, it's their ip is so strong at disney that they've they've really despite the fact that as far as i can tell got very minimal new content um but what new what new content they do have is so highly coveted that people they, they sign people up like crazy yeah, that's true. And Dis disney plus seems to there's there seems to be a lot of new content on there for young kids um which is one of the reasons why i think it's it's been vital for them to do this disney plus star thing for their more mature stuff and a lot of their like the alien things that they got from fox it's it'll be interesting to see how that side of the disney plus streaming develops will they start doing more adult new, original content adult stuff over there that is not necessarily star wars disney or marvel branded um will we get um you know a a mini series the life on life on lv426 for, for mean, alien or something like that could, could, could just, as long as they keep ridley scott away from it yeah yeah i don't know what's you had your chance him. really i don't know what's happened with him and maybe just to have a chat the neil blomkamp yeah come on yep. back yeah come on really? back bring it back um what we're talking netflix movies should we move Ooh. on to uh, yeah. the other netflix movie you saw a bit of uh, I saw a bit of i saw the whole thing this is mm -hmm. netflix movie stowaway yes a three-person crew on a mission to mars faces an impossible choice when an unplanned passenger jeopardizes the lives of everyone on board 
This is directed by Joe Pena or Pena. I don't know how you pronounce that. It sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything he's ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's got that going for it. <laughs> he wrote it as well. Um, yeah. It stars probably our most notable stars here, Anna Kendrick, and mm-hmm. the Australian living treasure, Tony Collette, who George can't stand. <clears throat> Seriously, he's a living treasure. Yeah, how can you not like? She's so good. She's just so everything good. about her just makes me want to claw my skin off. She's so good. I mean, she does everything. Like she did horror. She's done comedy. She's done drama, and she does it all really well. I don't think she does. <laughs> I mean, she's really Academy don't. Award nominated, right? She was. So? I mean, she's she's uh, she only won, one, and that's kind of a shame. Um, but she's won. She's been nominated for lots of Golden Globes, Emmys, Baftas, Actors, uh, yes, 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 get Astro off, Awards, get off, yeah, AFIs, actors. Yeah, like seriously, she's. I don't think you can say she's not a good actress. I, I you can. can. Say, you, can, you can say you don't like her work. You can't say she's not. You can't say it's not good. She's not talented. I I don't think she is. Oh, I think they're very I, different I, things, right? Like I, you can say, I, under, I, don't... I understand that she is incredibly popular, and many people think that she is talented. I just do not see the. I just don't see it. I, her, Melissa McCartney, and Renee Zellweger, the most overrated performers. I just, I have tried. I just don't think, I just don't see how you can say that. You can say you don't enjoy something. But to say, it, like, I mean, we had this argument once before when you said you didn't think Black Mirror was good, and you said it was objectively bad. Mm. But I think you can say I don't enjoy it. But to say it's objectively bad is kind of ridiculous. But that's another argument. <laughs> uh, we had that one, um, and I think the same thing here. You can say I don't enjoy her work, mm. which is crazy, but understandable. But at the same time, you say I don't. Th- or to say Renee Zellweger is not good because did you see Judy? I have not seen Judy. I do want to see Judy. Because she's amazing in that. Um, but anyway, so living treasure, Tony Collette. In, an, in a role I will pay is an odd one for her. It's a funny little role for her to be in. It doesn't fit like something I would expect to see Tony in. I think she does okay with it. So I think, I think all of the actors, because um, Anna Kendrick, Daniel Day Kim, who is... He, he's a face that a lot of people will probably know. He was from Lost. In, uh, from Lost. He was in um, the very bad Hellboy reimagining from two years ago. Um, he was in Insurrection. So he's definitely a face that people would recognize. And the other, the only other actor in this is Shamir Anderson, who I momentarily thought, oh, is, is that Denzel Washington's son again? No, that's not him. Because just there was just a, the first the first time you see him when he like falls out of the air duct, it's like oh shit okay is that him oh no no it's not him I don't that's know that's racist that's right he was in um, Winona Earp I think did you watch Winona Earp I thought you might have um, no Shay has watched Winona Earp but wow. I have not but so uh, as George is giving a bit of a hint here how much did, how far how far in did you make it. 40 minutes. Okay, it's not too bad. It's um it is two hours, so that's almost mm. halfway. Mm. Um we have a living in a universe where missions to Mars are a little bit more run of the mill. Mm-hmm. Um we, we have a fairly regular trip 
what do you want to call it, sort of schedule of flights to Mars. We have uh, a, 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 a regular a scheduled mission to going to Mars with our three main stars, Anna Kendrick, Daniel Day, Kim, and Tony Collette. Tony Collette is kind of the, the pilot, if you will, of the um, shuttle, for want of a better term, um, the spaceship, uh, the rocket, what do you call it? Um, Anna Kendrick <laughs> and Daniel Day Kim are scientists of some description who mm -hmm. are accompanying her on the trip to Mars to do science things. Mm -hmm. um, and everything and, uh, goes according to plan. And, that's plan, the and, they, get, and they get there. And, it's, and Matt yeah. Damon lives there. They eat some yeah. food potatoes. Yeah. It's just, you know, everyone has a good time. It's some yeah. disco music. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they they take off as something uh, shortly after they, they they hook up with like a thing like a, like a mini space station thing in mm. orbit above Earth, which then pushes off towards Mars. Uh, mm. It spins around to give them um, a false gravity. Um, mm. Shortly as, as they're sort of going about their way, doing their thing, um, uh, Tony Collette's checking a thing, <laughs> the air duct, as you sort of say, <laughs> and in in checking his air duct, she finds that somehow. Jimmy Anderson's character Michael has inadvertently stowed away on their trip into on their trip to Mars. He was he worked he worked in the spaceship somehow. He was like an you know, a technician of some description, and somehow got stuck mm -hmm. in the ship. And when it was in on board, when it took off, and he's now on the on the way to to Mars with them. Nothing suspicious there. And that was just the interesting thing is this film. I will say this has a fairly poor rating, by the way, it's a five point six nine dB, which I think mm -hmm. is. Is underserved. It's it's better than that. It has a sixty three on Metascore, which is more about where I think it should sit. Um, this thing does tend to subvert your expectations on the regular for me. Mm -hmm. uh, if you manage to make it all the way through, um, put the spoiler warning up because all right, uh, it's going up. It's up. It's up. If you're listening later, spoilers. Scooch one hour twenty seven, ladies and gentlemen. Scooch ahead, or if you're watching and you want to see this, if it sounds like your kind of thing, it is yep. sci fi. Think think Apollo thirteen. If you like Apollo thirteen, you might enjoy this. This is not Apollo thirteen, by the way. Not in that league. This is this is this is, this is like you know, Mum says we've got the, we've got Apollo thirteen at home, and and this is what's in the cupboard, right? Um, this is dollar store <laughs> Apollo thirteen. Oh, this is the student version. Um, pretty much. It's like, you know, I know a genuine Sawney when I see one. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you like that, you might enjoy it. So um, they encounter the problem, that obviously, you, you expect they're going to encounter is that he's some sort of saboteur, you know, uh, or something, something, nefarious, some, Michael has some sort of nefarious, you know, intent, or he's got some sort of problem that's going to lead him to be you know kill everybody on board or he's gonna open up a portal to hell and take it's them to a event sleeper agent or it's gonna be like a vent horizon or something it would be a lot cooler if it was like a vent <laughs> yeah, horizon that would, uh, that would be a twist although that would probably end up going into um what was that fucking um uh cloverfield, cloverfield uh, paradox. Uh, paradox. oh yeah. no yeah i invoked the name <laughs> the third seal is broken be gone, demon. Oh, that film was awful. Um, but it doesn't, so it, it subverts your expectations that Michael is not a nefarious sleeper, he's not a demon of any kind, he's not an alien in disguise, and he has no nefarious purposes at all. This is more in the vein of, like I said, something more like Apollo 13 or The Martian, where uh, the, the enemy or the obstacle to overcome is nature or physics itself. 
Mm. Uh, in this case, the in, in being inadvertently stowed away, uh, Michael has damaged some sort of air duct ventilation system mm. thing, and that means that they as it turn, they do not have enough oxygen to get them all four of them on the way to Mars. Uh, and that and that does actually introduce an interesting element of mm. how do you then decide, you know, if you literally either three of you get there alive or everyone dies. Mm. It's a really interesting little angle on a story to to take. Yeah. And then you could really have a, a, a wonderful discussion of morality around that situation um, and how do we deal with it. And the film does that for a little while, mm. but it doesn't really, doesn't really stick to it. Um we uh we we then sort of go through some explorations of ways they can get around it and it kind of turns into a bit of a space adventure oh, I don't know. yeah i don't know how to describe it it's, it's a bit a bit martiany at the end in the sense of like we need to do this thing to get the thing to do the other thing which will help us save us you know yeah. um and then it it gets kind of gets a little bit silly towards the end where you know, someone has to gloriously sacrifice themselves in order to to save everybody and make sure they get to Mars. Uh, so I can see maybe that's what the ending is disappointing. Mm. It's sudden and it's kind of like, ah, I don't know how to win this. Fuck it. Everybody's dead. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's just kind of throws the end of the screen. Like, oh, that's deeply underwhelming. Yeah. Uh, but in the lead up to that, I found it genuinely, a lot of it very tense. And okay. I found the moral dilemma at the set, the core of a film interesting. I, I don't think it explored it or, uh, or approached it anything particularly original or intelligent, yeah. but it was interesting to see a film even have a go at it for a little while. I don't think many films do. I think it would be a far yeah. easier. You know, I was I was fully expecting this to be like Sunshine. Remember Sunshine? Yeah, now, I liked that. F- yeah, I liked it, and that was you know, it, it was Danny Boyle, yeah. wasn't it? Um, yeah, Danny Boyle yeah, and, and uh, Alex Garland. Alex Garland. So it's, it's a good, you know, Killian Murphy. <laughs> it just it had a fairly super, bit of a supernatural element in there as yeah. well. Remember yeah. the the former captain and stuff, uh, and that's kind of what I was expecting to be done in this film. But when you see Netflix movie, and you sort of get those elements in space, and you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're gonna have a ghost story in space and it's a Netflix movie. This is gonna suck. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't do that. It, as I said, it takes a, a slightly left well traveled path of, you know, um, as like I said, you know, the, the ship's moving too fast to turn around. There's not enough air for all of them on board. What do you do? Mm. Um and and it, I enjoyed parts of it, a significant chunk of it I enjoyed. Uh mm. there are some scenes where uh, a couple of the uh, characters have to climb out of a spacecraft and into other parts of a spacecraft in, in ways that they weren't designed to do mm-hmm. that evoke gravity for me. Um, uh, again, I am comparing to significantly better films, by the way, mm-hmm. not, not putting it in that category. But there, but there, I don't. Do you, do you see gravity? I, I liked it. I don't. I don't think it's uh, Alfonso Cuarón's best work, but um, it was good. I, I know I find, I think I said this before, but I find the idea of being in space incredibly uncomfortable. Like the idea of, you know, I found just uh, First Man, the Ryan Gosling film, where he's flying, mm-hmm. Neil Armstrong's flying in the space by himself and you can see the yeah. curvature of the earth. And you're like, that, the idea of that is fucking terrifying that, to me. That's that's strangely claustrophobic and so expansive mm-hmm. all at once. It, it was great 
Um, Ryan Gosling did it great, and so did Sandra Bullock in in Gravity as well. Um, that is one of the problems that I I feel with the first forty minutes of this. Is I didn't get really a sense of space of where they were. It seemed bigger than what they were, and there was um, like Michael's character talks. Like there's a, there's a moment where um, Zoe it's like goes, "Oh, I'll never get used to the fact that uh, how close we are to nothing." And he rattles off some science about, "Oh, yeah, when they added a third person, they had to reduce all this and that and that." So like, that's cool that adds a highlight of just what you literally being here just your weight let alone your oxygen and things like that what kind of toll that would take on the journey itself but i'm not really seeing it like the 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 sets are nice they're good but they they don't feel like they they're as claustrophobic as they kind of should be uh, fairness, uh, that's fair. Um, uh, I don't think it does it as well as, as again, like something like Apollo 13 did. Mm, um, yeah. uh, but it gets better mm-hmm. on that front later okay. on, if that's what okay. you're looking for, which wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but, like, you know, um, where uh, they have to, they're sort of scaling through space on cables with cable hooks to sort of mm. scaling these cables to get to uh, the, the big ship that's spinning thing it's spinning around to do do things with it uh, do, the they're gonna do they're gonna retrieve liquid oxygen from the big tank thing that's spinning around creating their mm. gravity um and they have to climb this cable with hooks and stuff and you're like oh that is just the worst i just felt incredibly uncomfortable with the item <laughs> doing that in in, in, okay. in open space right um uh and i thought those scenes were done well i thought it looked okay. good yeah um if you don't have a problem with any of the actors, um, look, I mean, do set your expectations to low. Mm. I thought it was a lot better than a 5.6 for me. Mm. Not perfect, but better than a 5.6. I did like, I feel like there was kind of purposeful casting, certainly so far with it. Like for me, anytime it's, it's a situation like, like this, the stowaway and how that affects, um, the fact that they are they have this grander mission for me i always want there to be someone who just go all right i'm just gonna shoot you dead done problem solved out there lock and move on but the way that um zoe and david's characters are as well as certainly in the first 40 minutes that i've watched uh marina they all seem too level-headed and too pleasant to just be that cold-blooded. So it, I accepted that, so far I've accepted the fact that like, okay, none of them is willing to just pull that thread and just get it done. They're, 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 not, they're not telling that story. That's okay. okay I, I know what my expectation is now and move on. But um, it was nice. And they, they're all, they're all entertaining. So far, so far, just building the char- characters up and having them interact with Michael as he's kind of inducted into the group, you you see you see just nice character work, and that's that's something that I don't think really any of the things that we've talked about so far in the show have had. So it's nice to actually have just a little bit of that on the on the palette today. <laughs> And it's also very easy to say you just shoot someone for about an airlock, but I'm not mm. sure that's true to life. Killing, killing someone you've got to know oh, would be yeah, challenging, I, right? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do it. But I've always, in the mindset, 
that they, you know, if you're sending people off to start building things for the future, it's so like, okay, we need to make sure that no one goes crazy. We need to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And this is, these are the hard lines that we have. So like, okay, the priority is that this ship gets to, to Mars. So we will have to do this. So, oh, so this has happened. Here's what you do to make sure that you get there and things like that. And like <laughs> killing a stowaway probably wasn't on one of the checklists. I, I kind of feel like it's, it's at that point that, 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 do you believe it? Do you not? If you are willing to believe and just go with the ride, then fine. If you, uh, like, I, I feel like this would kind of fail the pseudo de uh, Dell scenarios. So like, I don't believe that that would happen. I don't believe that someone could do that. So throwing the whole movie out. I, I did. I'll pay that. But the, the, Videl, the Videl effect went from my head going, I don't know if that's actually possible. Like, you know, weight on spaceships is pretty tightly rationed. Yeah. And they even go through that in the film. She brings a mug yeah. on to, 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 to taunt one of her, her fellow scientists, or, um, Anna Kendrick's character does. And he's like, oh, you use 800 grams of your personal allowance for that, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you know, they've got enough of an allowance that he can talk about 800 grams or whatever it was. But, like, yeah. this guy's got to weigh, I don't know, 150, 200 pounds. And <laughs> they didn't notice it's like sorry, out goes the mug. <laughs> yeah, like it's yeah, it was um that part was a little bit. I was a little bit like that was a leap. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I was I'm so far I've been happy to just accept that that this happened in order to tell the story. As long as they keep me invested with the rest of the story, then I will forgive forgive that that big leap of faith that they're asking you to do with everything that they've set up so far. It's like, okay. All right, let's go. Let's just see. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure you're going to make it all the way through um, okay. with your uh, Tony Collette uh, issue. If you have an issue with one of the performances in the film, uh, I can't think of any. Like I know Shay won't watch Tom Cruise movies, for example. Mm -hmm. um, just has a problem with Tom. I. <laughs> I mean, I would like. I struggle with um with Sandler, um because he's very rarely in anything that's watchable. Um, but I don't think I, I mean, I, I, in fairness, I gave Uncut Gems a chance last year and I hated mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, but you know, I made it all the way through, um, uh, Punch Drunk Love. That's the only one. Yeah, Punch Drunk Love's a good movie. It's a very good movie. But I think he's probably maybe equivalent. Any person I can think of for me is like, if I see he's in it, I mean, and probably now to a degree, Melissa McCarthy, like, um, she's done some stuff I didn't hate. Like I like Spy. Um, but pretty much if I see her name on something now, she does nothing but shit recently yeah. um i'm gonna go hmm, you know maybe not right uh give me a good reason to watch i'm always willing to to give any any movie a go there's no actor in a movie that i would just go no i'm not watching it just because of that one actor if there's something else in the movie that is interesting to me it's like okay you are getting a pass on this one because of this. Here's your chance. Yeah, you, you, you can piggyback on my love for something else. Do it, do it. I always want the best, but so far from Tony Collette's performance, it's like, okay, this is very vanilla. And you're trying to hurt me again. You're going to ask me to stop now. Uh, <laughs> do you, uh, I, I, I feel like I don't want to cut you off. You have anything else you will talk about this week that I've forgotten about? Um. 
Well, I, I do want to talk about uh, yet another Netflix movie. Uh, it's called Love and Monsters, but I will talk about that next week because okay. we are getting along in the tooth. And I want to hear what you think about Minari. Minari. By the way, we're going to park, for, as I suspected we would have to, mm-hmm. a conversation about when is too much superheroes enough. Because mm-hmm. uh, um, after we've watched Loki in two weeks' time, uh, yeah, it's not a bad is. idea. Yeah, <laughs> Minari is the uh, Academy Award nominated uh, drama uh, starring Stephen Ewan. Uh, it did win an Academy Award this year, Best Performance mm-hmm. by an Actress in a Supporting Role. It was nominated for five other Oscars, which it did not win, including uh, Best Original Screenplay, Best Performance by an Actor, and uh, Best Motion Picture of the Year. And director, so it, it got some big nods, and it it well, it was it didn't win. It's, it um, thoroughly deserves those nominations. Now, <laughs> the synopsis, according to IMDb, you best strap your ears in because <laughs> I'm going to take them in for the I'm going to take them for the right of their life, this, this, ladies this and gentlemen. This is the longest synopsis that we have ever read out on this show, okay. ladies and gentlemen. Go get a go. cup of tea. Let's mm-hmm. get comfortable. Start your timers, ladies and gentlemen. Begin. A Korean family starts a farm in 1980s Arkansas. Full stop. That is it. Thank you for coming. I'm like, okay? I guess, you know. Uh, The usual suspects. A bunch of criminals commit crimes. (laughs) You know, like uh, Cinderella, what's that about? (laughs) A princess has a big sleep and marries someone. It doesn't, you know, it's um, yeah, okay, so a little bit more detail here. Yeah, yes, you're earning to open a small, own a small patch of land and uh, and be more than a chicken sexer. The ambitious pet, paterfamilias, I don't really know what that word is. Um, father, Jake, father leader of the family, uh, Jacob Yee. Relocates his Korean American family, skeptical wife Monica, and their children David and Anne, from California to 1980s rural Arkansas to start afresh and capture the elusive American dream. It's a long sentence. However, new beginnings are always challenging, and to find out what is best for the family, let alone start a 50-acre farm to grow and sell Korean fruits and vegetables, is easier said than done. But amid sincere promises, cultural needs, fleeting hopes, and the ever-present threat of financial disaster. Jacob is convinced that he has found his own slice of Eden in the rich, dark soil of Arkansas. Can Grandma Sunja's humble but resilient Minari help the Yi family figure out their place in the world? That gives you a better synopsis. So we have Stephen Nguyen, who probably everyone's most likely to know from The Walking Dead. Um, and the voice uh, yes, uh, he, was in, he was in Okia as well, on which was an Netflix oh, yes, was. thing. That was um, uh, he said he's probably, but I think it's The Walking Dead. Yeah. <laughs> he's the, yeah. Basically, played Glenn, didn't he? I think. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's probably the only person in this film you're going to know. Um, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Daryl Cox plays Mr. Harlan, oh, I think. Um, yeah, maybe. Um, it's it, it's a fairly low profile mm. cast yeah um the uh as we sort of know so Stephen Ewan moves his family from California to Arkansas he sets up sh- up in a you know on a 50 acre farm living in a basically I guess what the Americans call it, uh, like a mobile home like mm-hmm. a trailer kind of thing uh his wife is super unimpressed about it she's super uh as you sort of noted they're really really skeptical 
um, about uh, about the whole kit and caboodle, um, and uh, they bring their kids along, uh, David and mm -hmm. Anne. Um, and Question? Yes. What is Minari? Because in one uh, in the 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 longer one, it's Grandma Suja's humble but resilient Minari. What is? Yes, what is I was going to get. I was going to get to that. Sorry, sorry. Um, because it doesn't make a lot of. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, but as you said, he wants to start this farm, and he mm -hmm. wants to grow Korean stuff because he's you know there's lots of Korean people migrating to the US every year, and he sort of sees a potential market in it. He meets okay. a local guy who helps him set up and start to plant things, and it's actually a fairly it's a gentle movie. It's mm -hmm. a gentle, slow, um, meandering kind of story. Like it's no. There's no real, um, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, the local yuppies want to buy his land to mm. build an oil refinery, and yet the young plucky gang of Koreans needs to win the ski race to, you know, <laughs> save the youth centre or something. I don't know. Like, it's not, nothing, cool it's nothing, Minaris? <laughs> like it's, it's nothing like that, you know, like uh, the mighty Minaris. It's like, it's like mighty ducks, and it except it's farming. It's... <laughs> Okay, so Minari is apparently a plant native to East Asia and found in a lot of South Korean cooking. That is, it is a plant. Mm. Um, so I guess the story really starts to get going is when the the, the wife's grandmother, Sunya, uh, arrives on the scene from Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, her, her husband and uh, what's the actual wife's name? Is it Monica, I think. Monica. Uh, her, uh, Monica's... Um, uh, Monica's dad was killed in the Korean War. So they bring her over. This is probably you know pretty standard in sort of Southeast Asian, a lot of Southeast Asian cultures. Is you know you look mm. after your parents as they're older, yeah. and yeah. she comes over to live with him in the United States. Uh, and one of the great joys of this film is the relationship it forms between Sunya and David. David's mm -hmm. a, a really the youngest child in the family. He's very shy initially around his grandma because he never met her. Yeah. Um, and they ended up, and she's just the most brilliant character in his Sunya. She's she's funny, touching. You know, uh, she has this. She ends up falling in love with professional wrestling. Uh, and there's always clips <laughs> of her watching like '80s professional wrestling and taking it very seriously. Uh, she teaches her son how to play cards and how to cheat. Um, and it's just. It's just brilliant, like, and they have this brilliant relationship together mm -hmm. where um, she, because she doesn't speak English, uh, and uh, David, being a young boy, has the odd bout of bedwetting. And mm. so she learns how to say, penis broken, penis broken, about her son. <laughs> but, but David's like, it's not a penis, it's a ding dong. And so she goes around, ding dong broken. Um, and it's, I don't, I don't want to spoil the people, but it's actually, it's, I don't use the word heartwarming very much, but I think it's very appropriate here. It's like it's a beautiful representation of a relationship between between her and her grandson that, that forms at like and you go and you can almost see the um I don't say uh, I sound really cynical the utility or or, or or how wonderful that kind of existence must have. Like it's not mm. down here in the West, right? We don't do that. We park our old people where they fucking belong. In old people <laughs> warehouses where they can be studied to see if we can actually extract any useful resources from them. That's what we do. Yeah. We park them away where we don't. They don't bother anybody. Um, Why do you have that strange smell? You all have it. 
Get over there in the corner. No, he's, he's an old man stink. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but the, 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 the Eastern... Um, did you just assume my gender? Um, <laughs> the, the, in the East, we sort of we South Eastern Asian, or many cultures around the world, where you know you 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 look after your parents as they age. Yeah. Um, and this kind of thing, it must be something. Or maybe I know it's just a film, but it must actually be one of a really great, wonderful benefits of that is you get to know um, in a really intimate way. I mean, intimate in the right way. Um, a, a a close family member like this, you actually this her grandson and her really have this amazing relationship together, which yeah. you just probably wouldn't have if you saw them once, twice a year. Yeah. Now, where Minari comes into it uh, is Sunya brings Minari seeds with her from Korea. It is not something that um, uh, uh, Jacob uh, Stephen Yun's character is looking to plat, and so. Um, uh, sort of, they, she goes walking with um, Dave one day and they find a, a little creek on the property. Mm. He's, oh, that's a really great place for Minari, for to grow Minari along the river there. It would grow perfectly there. So she and she says it to Jacob at one point point. goes, oh, I've got this Minari. I think you're growing it down by river. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll think about it. And so she just does it anyway um, <laughs> without telling him. And, and that's another wonderful, wonderful to see. It's not played up a lot, but the relationship between Jacob and Sunya is, is it, it gets warmer as the film goes on. Um, and this is what's a bit weird for me. Is the Minari, I guess it's supposed to be a metaphor for something because it doesn't really play a huge role in the film at any point in time. Like, it's there, we, we revisit it a couple of times. One time, you know, they go back after it's all grown, and Sunya and David, they cut it all, and she's going, oh, this is so good. It goes really well in kimchi and this, that, and the other thing. It's really good. And I'm like, oh, okay. <sighs> So at some point, you know, the, the, the Minari, the fact that she's gone out on her own and planted all this Minari by the river, it's going to be, oh, well, we, all the local Korean restaurants are really short on it. You know, we just happen to have this amazing supply and yay, you saved the farm. Um, that, spoilers, it, it doesn't happen. Um, um, but so I, I don't know. I'm too stupid um, being the Muppet that I am to actually try and decipher what the filmmaker was trying to say with this Minari uh, and calling it that and then what they did with it. Um, I just really fell in love with this film and the characters in a sense that mm -hmm. this is a film where nothing exciting happens, right? I mean, I wouldn't say there are no explosions, but there are almost no explosions. There's no car chases. There's no shooting. You know, there are no superheroes in this film. Um, no, there are no, no one's stowed away in the tractor or anything um but it's um it's just it's just quiet and i think methodical and just sort of goes about telling a story that you do not see very often i, mean, I don't think you see it very often i mean i think it's a, a wonderful opportunity as films had to get a little bit more publicity in a year like this where mm. you know let's face it in, in a normal year it would be buried underneath you know triple a releases of even you know highly profile you know prestige releases even you know Yep. of stuff which which hasn't been made yet because because of the last year that this is the kind of story that i think gets lost amongst all that because these stories don't get told uh in the sense of this is a classic immigrant story you know like uh steven ewan moves to australia he writes a book no sorry that was your story um <laughs> another classic immigrant story um but <laughs> yes it's one for the ages <laughs> who can forget when Stephen Yorn gets that job at t2 uh, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I'm gonna see. I don't think he. I don't think he looked like you, but then, you know, he, he, um, he got the he accent right. Um, he could do it. Um, but these sort of stories, right? Like of like, I mean, America or Australia are mm. countries built on immigrants. Yeah. And the stories of these people have come. They are part of our culture now, especially mm. like I mean, I, I have to obviously be in the United States, but you know, in Australian sense, like you live here now, you can see it. Like um, our Greek and Italian heritage, even if you look at stuff like the Vietnamese heritage from the late seventies and mm. Chinese heritage to a degree from going back 150 years now, it's yeah. so deeply ingrained in Melbourne that like, you know, um, it's almost, it's, it's very deeply part of our culture. Now is there are people from all over the world here. Um, yeah. And the stories about how they used to tell stories about what it was like for these people coming here, but they don't anymore. Yeah. Um, and I, I looks like that's true of the United States as well. And if, if I'm missing stories out there, you know, come at me, tell me, tell me what they are. I'd love to see them. But this is this is a wonderful little piece of storytelling that goes to show that that of a a part of a, a part of our story, shall we say, in immigrant countries like Australia and the US, uh, we we miss. And hello, Archimedes. Archimedes agrees with me. You can tell. Yeah. There he is. Uh, he's had enough. He's, uh, he's come in for his say. Um, but Go on. It's, it, I was just going to say, it, it's really, it's, and it's also a wonderful little story about a family and mm. not in an overly melodramatic way. Mm. I mean, there are some melodramatic parts, and I found the character of, um, of uh, Monica actually quite frustrating at times in the sense mm. that. I don't know. I don't think she really gives Jacob a chance. Like, I don't like Jacob's giving it a red hot go in his story. And actually, mm. all she does is bitch and moan most of the time uh, about how she doesn't like living in Arkansas. I don't blame her. I doubt many people enjoy living in Arkansas from what I've heard about the place. But yeah, but for the most part, it's a one of it's a great story about a family and, and you know, the kind of problems that a family has to deal with and how they overcome them together. And uh, I, I loved this story. It's just, we don't this see enough. This kind of sounds like, like it. it's a like a wholesome polar opposite of Parasite. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Parasite yet. That's that's on me. Um, but it's certainly wholesome. Um, it, you could definitely take your kids to see it. Um, yeah. I would highly encourage you to take your kids to see it. Um, it it's it's just it's just a sit film. You can sit back and go and. And watch and enjoy. And I know that sounds like a really simple thing to say, um, but just let the story wash over you because there is a story. Let the characters wash over them and sit back and actually really get to know a bunch of people who you actually probably really want to spend. You would probably enjoy spending some time with if you spoke the same language as most of them. Like, um, and just just sit back and and let all of that envelop you and just go along with the flow. No stress, you know. No politics. Uh, and just enjoy a really great story about a really interesting bunch of people doing something incredibly admirable. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we just witnessed the melting of an icy heart. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> I had a reputation to uphold. Yeah, your reputation is... Macamudgeon, Macamudgeon. Wishy heart, and you love musicals. That's it. Oh, that That's is a truth, stinking lie. Yeah. That's a half truth. <laughs> uh, That's a three quarter truth. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I just, 
I enjoy a good story. You know that. And um, yeah. And I'm a politics has its place. I think the best film of the year for me was absolutely promising, young woman. It absolutely should have won best picture. Nomadland was the safest choice, and I called it on the show, by the way, that the Academy would go for safe choice and, and choose Nomadland. Um, but I, I think that you, uh, I think I at the same time there's space for a film like Minari that's just telling a wonderful story about wonderful characters in a really unusual way. In a sense, it doesn't need to move at a million miles an hour. It just sort of slowly unfolds. And is this this is still in the cinema, right? I think you can probably see it, and you can see it here in cinemas as well. Yeah, I think it's also available, maybe to rent on some of the on-demand services. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Or if not, if not, it will be soon. Uh, if you have a chance to see it on the big screen, I would recommend it. It's um, it's a wonderful cinema experience. Okay. Cool. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We're not going to do our when it's too much, too much uh, conversation. We will save that for after Loki. So probably. Two, three weeks from now. Uh, well, Loki's probably going to be released um, episodically. That might be a little while, but it's a conversation that's not going to go away. It's only going to get more prevalent, I'm sure. Can you um, see how many films Marvel has planned to come out this year? Holy shit. I think three films from here on in. We got we have Black Widow, okay. Shang-Chi, and then I think The Eternals. I think that's the one that rounds it off. Yeah, I think so. Um, we we did get like a little bit more of a teaser and the first true looks at the Eternals and so far so much Marvel teaser for a film coming out and not yet finished production. So okay. we did also actually get the trailer for Venom, Let There Be Carnage, which dropped uh, just yesterday. I think it was. It's a sequel mm. to Venom um, again. So much so superhero movie sequel uh, directed by Andy Serkis. So there's already just in the trailer, there's a, a lot more kind of fun. Humor. And Which is, mm, yeah. didn't feel, I didn't like it, but then again, I didn't like Venom very much. Yeah. But Shay will be excited, right? That's her favorite superhero film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's what she said. Um, it'll be good to see Woody Harrelson in there. I'm sure that he will do very good as a comic book villain that is psychotic and supposed to be kind of funny as well. Um, it very much sounds like his meal ticket. Um, yeah, that's that's our show, folks. That's our show. We talked about uh, Natural Born Killers. We're going to be going on to LA Story next week um we talked about jupiter's legacy uh thunder force and stowaways which are all uh netflix movies for for this year um and travis finished off by warming being a soft gooey center with minari which has definitely captivated a lot of people i am looking forward to finally catching that side of it um if you've got any recommendations for movies more akin to like Minari and like what Travis was talking about at the end there, those like, I suppose you can call them niche stories, uh, the, the birth of different, um, different uh, cultures within, particularly within Western societies, because they sadly so frequently are the, uh, the downtrodden elements of the society because they ain't white people. So fuck them apparently. Um, 
I love those stories. I love hearing about that stuff. So I want to find out more. So if you know some really interesting stories, let us know. Let us know. You can go to twitch.tv slash the fried brain. Catch us there. You can leave messages in the chat. You can go to fried brain productions on Facebook, George Taran on Facebook, uh, the fried brain on Twitter. Travis is just uh, God. Um, and um, I'm glad someone finally acknowledged it. Hey, I'm your first follower, my friend. <laughs> blessed, blessed be blessed 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 be the talent <laughs> kick this oh holy hand grenade of antioxidants they may blow thy enemies into smithereens <laughs> in thy mercy <laughs> on that note ladies and gentlemen we're going to round it out of the two hour mark again thank you so okay. much for watching and listening okay. good night good night Thank you for listening to Armchair Producers. We are a weekly podcast every Wednesday at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you'd like to follow along live, please go to twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain, where you can actually also donate to us, as well as watching us live on youtube.com slash Productions or facebook.com slash Productions. Thank you, and see you next time. Bye-bye.